Dan joining you on the 1944th anniversary of the most famous volcanic eruption in the history of mankind. No, nothing to do with Patrick Lefebvre on realising that Remco Avenepoel hasn't completely put an end to speculation about his future. I am, of course, talking about Mount Vesuvius on August the 24th, 79 AD. It's thought to have happened then. Uh, no one's quite sure. My name is Daniel Freiber, and this in this episode, we'll be talking about how Remco can defend his Vuelta a España title while eking out another three weeks of what he called the bullshit conjecture around his possible divorce from Lefebvre. We'll be looking ahead to the Vuelta in general, and in particular, it's Gran Salida in Barcelona in the company of a famous Lionel who is to the podcast what his namesake Messi was to the Catalan capital for 20 years. Lionel Bernie, how are you? Wow. Wow. Am I, I'm, well, you're normally the number 10 of the cycling podcast, aren't you? I I'm, guess I'm, this I'm, makes me Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm a sort of... Yeah, uh, the preening show pony <laughs> of Real Madrid. I'd be a kind of, you know, more workmanlike number 16 or something. You know, not even in the first 11, but can do a job in a number of different positions, I suppose, as and when called upon. Uh, Daniel, the big question, are you more Barcelona or Real Madrid? And this will be my last oh, football Oh, that's reference. a great question. Well, do you know what? I'm reading, in preparation for the Vuelta, I'm reading a fascinating book called Fear and Loathing in La Liga by Sid Lowe, the English author. And there's a lot in there about the history of the rivalry El Clasico of course that's also the name of our Vuelta coverage because the race is going from Barcelona to Madrid and there's a lot of fascinating stuff um, in there about the as I say the, the origins of the rivalry loads of great stuff about the Spanish Civil War which I didn't know a whole lot about and it's made me if I was undecided before reading that it's made me more of a Barca fan than a Real Madrid fan although you know, there is a, a sort of mystique, there is a beauty, there's a charm about, the, you, particularly the Real Madrid kit, um, the the Los Merengues, the, the famous white jersey, there's something beautiful about that. And, um, you know, Barcelona's image has been tainted by various things, um, agreements, um, sponsorship agreements, the, the way the club has kind of behaved a little bit over the last few years. But I would say more Barcelona than Madrid. Um, not sure about the cities, however. I think I'd probably prefer Madrid to Barcelona. But maybe, maybe I'll have a change of heart after the weekend because I'm going tomorrow. Interesting. Well, I've only been to one of the, the famous grounds, uh, Camp Nou, the home of Barcelona. Simon Gill and I went on a trip when we went to see Mitch Docker in Girona, in fact, a few Novembers ago. We went to see a Champions League game against Slavia Prague and it was the first nil-nil draw at uh, Barcelona's ground. I think they hadn't drawn nil-nil at home for about six years or something. Uh, so we managed to turn up and see a very rare nil-nil. But we did see Messi. He didn't score, but we did see uh, my namesake. I mean, the similarities are uncanny, aren't they? Let's, <laughs> let's currently, being, current, currently being rebuilt, um, I believe, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, they're, they're actually playing uh, in the Olympic Stadium, aren't they, Barcelona at the moment, yes. which is very close to where one of the uh, stages goes. I think, well, it'll be stage two, won't it? The stage one two. finishes in Barcelona will go over the, the hill, Monhurik, 
which is, uh, well, cycling fans will know it from the Volta a Catalunya as well. Um, but just before we get to the news roundup, Daniel, I am actually surprised to see you're here and you're not in court, some kind of intellectual property case against Primoz Roglic, who has launched ah, a, I was range, mention this. a range of clothing, is it? Merch that uses the, your yes. patented trademark phrase, roglification. I mean, surely yeah, this I don't is going to be... Yeah, this is dropped yet. Has the case been I dropped? I don't know if this is dropped I'm gonna. I, I don't know if it's been dropped. Not the case, but the merch itself. Um, I'm going to be having words with Primoz Roglic, his manager, who, of course, as mentioned previously on the podcast, um, <laughs> is a friend of mine and also my my supplier of the Swiss soft drink, uh, Rivella. He is from Switzerland. Um, actually, the, Primoz Roglic's manager um, is very well. His portfolio is very healthily represented in the Jumbo Visma team because Jumbo Visma have named a fantastic team. Um, four of them um, are looked after by Mattia Galli. Um, Yes, my Rivella dealer. I think your case is crumbling before your eyes because if you've accepted Rivella, presumably that's some kind of part payment for creating the the phenomenon, the word, the trademark, roglification and all of its various offshoots. Anyway, it was first heard on the cycling podcast courtesy of Daniel, so uh, presumably just a small royalty will be sufficient. Lionel, the Vuelta Burgos was roglified last week. Um, that, I imagine, will feature in your news roundup. So off you go. It will, yeah. Well, let's wrap up the quartet of stage races that there were last week very quickly. Uh, the Tour de Limousin in France was won by the young Roman Grégoire of Groupama FDJ, who now goes to the Vuelta as part of a very young Groupama team, which we may talk about in uh, our Vuelta preview a little bit later on. As you say, the Vuelta a Burgos, won by Primoz Roglic, who also took two stages, uh, continues his run, a remarkable run, of wearing the leader's jersey in every stage race since Vesuvius first erupted in <laughs> however long ago that was. When was it, Daniel? He's, he's, this is an incredible streak. Um, Apart from three Tours de France, um, he crashed in all of those Tours de France, crashed out, in fact, um, since 2018, mm. since the spring of 2018, I think it might be Tirreno when the when the run started. Slightly dense the uh, significance of that stat. He's worn the leader's jersey in every stage race that he's worn the leader's jersey in. I think well, oh, come on, it's 24. <laughs> I think that's I think that's pretty unparalleled in the history of professional cycling. Well, Jumbo Visma warmed up for the opening team time trial of the Vuelta by winning the team time trial in the Vuelta a Burgos and a couple of other stages won by riders who will also be on the start list at the Vuelta. Oye Lascano of Movistar and Juan Sebastian Milano of UAE Team Emirates. Uh, Stephen Williams, the Welsh rider with Israel Premier Tech, won the Arctic Race of Norway and the Tour of Denmark, very much a Danish affair, won by Mads Pedersen ahead of his Lidl Trek teammate Matthias Skelmoser. They did the 1-2 on uh, one of the stages where Skelmoser took the stage win and Pedersen took the lead as Jersey. Magnus Court was third overall, making an all-Danish podium. Pedersen wrapped up his victory by winning the final day's time trial and the other two stages were won by a Dutchman with a Danish name, Fabio Jakobsen. Uh, so there we are on to the one day races Arno De Lee who we bigged up enormously at the start of the year he was going to win everything wasn't he Milan San Remo was going to be first on the list well he won the Polynormand last week as we said and he's followed that up with the Tour of Leuven or the Memorial Jeff Skerens as the race is also known and he's extended his contract with Lotto Destiny uh, just a quick quiz question Daniel who was Jeff Skerens do you know uh, no, well, I don't. Well, a, a resident of Leuven, born not too far away, seven-time world sprint uh-huh. champion in the 1930s and 40s on the track. Uh, 
This is the race. This is the race, which, of course, I don't know if this is still the case, but for many years, um, it was decided on the Weimper's climb that was also where was it? Where? No, it wasn't quite where Junior Alaphilippe made his decisive move to win the World Championships in 2021. But it was very much well. It was the sort of stadium climb. It was the centerpiece climb on the Leuven circuit. Yeah, I mean, a, a race really that's kind of evolved out of the tradition of Belgian Kermes style races, really, as has, in a slightly different way, the Drievenkurs Overreiser, which was won by Victor Campenarts. I mean, Campenarts winning Drievenkurs Overreiser, that's the sort of tongue twister that gets uh, the non linguists panicking. And the Cy Classics, the Bernats, the Sorry, the Beamer Cy Classics in Hamburg, a race that's had multiple identities over the years, won by Mads Pedersen, who is in a rich vein of form uh, following, uh, well, a very strong Tour de France, wasn't it, where he won a stage. This week, we're all eyes on the Vuelta, but the Renewy Tour, the 19th edition of this race, a point if you can mention or name the other previous names for the Renewy Tour, Daniel. Uh, Eneco and that's about it that's about as far as I get well it started off yeah the Eneco tour of Benelux and then just the Eneco tour and then for a number of years it was known as the Bink Bank tour which was a sort of onomatopoeic name because it's the same sound the riders made as they bounced off the road furniture Um, and then once that sponsor uh, which was a bank step down it was just a benelux tour renewi is a waste management company which recycles 65 percent of the waste that it receives and it operates across the whole benelux region the race i needed reminding of this actually because the race was cancelled last year because the welter itself started in the netherlands and there was a real kind of stretch on all of the resources you know the sort of uh, you know the infrastructure needed the barriers uh the, the even the the police and and uh you know, the, the people who are going to be keeping the course safe. So they, they postponed the race. It's back this year as the Renewy Tour. And the first stage was won by Jasper Philipson. Uh, his first victory since winning at the Tour de France. Second place for Tim Malia, who left Alpecin last year for Sudal Quickstep and hasn't ridden a Grand Tour for them this year and won't make, and hasn't made rather, the Sudal Quickstep team for the Vuelta because obviously all of their focus is on Remco Evenepoel. But for a rider of his ability, Tim Malia, not to ride a single Grand Tour this season uh, must be pretty disappointing for him. Uh, what else? Well, the Deutschland Tour is about to get underway the Tour de l'Avenir is on we'll probably see the significance of this year's results Deutschland Tour has started Deutschland Tour has started Ethan Vernon won the oh, yes. prologue very short prologue so it was Saint Wendel it was only two point something kilometres wasn't it so short I didn't even notice um, the Tour de l'Avenir though this is a big race for the young riders we'll see the significance of this year's results in about 12 months time won't we when they all ride the Vuelta uh, because last year's winner Kian Utgebrooks is going to be lining up for his first Vuelta for Bora Hansgrohe he won the L'Avenir last year uh, Roman Gregoire who also won a stage I've already mentioned uh, he's riding the Vuelta it really is the kind of proving ground for young riders who are on the path some of them are already professionals and they're racing for their national team already the big favorite matthew richitello Mm. uh, of israel premier tech has already ridden the giro this year that's right yes um but interestingly today's stage uh, we're talking on thursday has been moved back two hours so that it avoids the hottest part of the day it's going to be 40 degrees in the leon area which is where the stage finishes today um i mean i i don't want to sort of uh you know go too deeply into uh, the the 
um, what's it called, the extreme weather protocol. But we are seeing more of this kind of thing, aren't we? Uh, I remember how long ago was it now that I made my kilometre zero episode on the climate? I think it was 2020. And from speaking to all of the climate scientists for that episode, uh, which was called the climate challenge, I went into it with one perception, which was how does professional cycling impact on its environment or the environment? And my perspective was completely switched around by the experts who talked to me about, no, the way to look at this is how the environment is going to impact on the sport. And we are starting to see that happen. Obviously, there's a lot more awareness. I mean, people will no doubt point to races in the dim and distant past when the riders rode in very, very hot temperatures. And this really wasn't on anybody's radar, whether it's the safety of the riders. Um, but it certainly is now. And it just made me think, if this were to happen during the Tour de France, they wouldn't so easily be able to move the start back a couple of hours, would they? Because obviously there would be huge implications for the live TV broadcast. The, G- the GP Vesuvius in uh, <laughs> 79 AD, for example, that was a very hot day. <laughs> oh dear. I think we've made this joke before about the extreme weather protocol taking into account Mount Etna erupting. I think we've made that joke during the Giro, but uh, in 10 years, we've probably rece- repeated ourselves a bit on the cycling podcast, haven't we? Uh, last week, Matt White of Jaco Alula talked to us about the tie-up between the, the senior team and the Hagens Berman Axion development squad run by Axel Merckx. Well, uh, Ben Wiggins, son of Bradley Wiggins, Tour de France winner in 2012, of course, has signed for Hagen's Berman Axion next year. Another few little interesting transfers. Uh, Lorenzo Fortunato has gone from Aeolo Cometa to Astana for next year. Fabio Fellini is going to Lidl Trek from Astana. Ryan Gibbons is going to Lidl Trek from UAE Team Emirates. I mean, I made the joke last week about them being on some kind of supermarket sweep, but they really are. uh, They're very, very busy in the transfer market, Lidl Trek, not just at the senior level, but also for their development squad. They have signed uh, uh, the son of Peter Van Patigam, the winner of the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. Yeah, Nicky Abersold's son has also joined them. Um, and there was another, I think there was a third yeah, Tim, famous offspring. Tim Torn Tutenberg, whose dad, oh, Lars, was a pro. Uncle Sven was a pro. And Aunt Ina was a pro as well. So there we are. Uh, well, that's about all from the news roundup. We really ought to turn our attention to all matters. Vuelta a España in the next part. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fueled by science well i know lots of transfer news in the news roundup this week and there'll be well there'll be more transfer news over the next month um, and you'll hear about it every day really because we're going to be covering the Vuelta España every day El Clásico I'll be on the ground in Spain and well we're going to have a bit of a revolving cast of characters aren't we primarily you You're going to be my co-host for the majority of stages, but we've also got Rob Hatch um, coming in. We've got uh, Dan Martin, I think, might make an appearance. Uh, Dan Martin um, in his adopted home in Andorra. He will be with me, I think, on Monday. Ian Boswell, we're hoping to have as well. Brian Nygaard, he's going to be our Jonas Vingegaard um correspondent so um it should be a cracking three weeks as ever as i once described the vuelta as the holiday grand tour i'm actually having a staycation this year you'll be you'll be there with your what do you need this year bucket and spade any opportunities <laughs> to do. be on the beach 
Um, lots of opportunities. There's a lot of, well, as ever, it's a surf and turf recipe that Javier Guillen and the Vuelta organisers have gone for. But speaking of the route, Lionel, um, shall I give us a quick sort of rundown um, on the route, what we should expect over the next three weeks, starting with Barcelona on Saturday? Well, it's the first start in Barcelona since 1962. That year, a German, Rudi Altig, won the race, so Emu Buchmann fans be excited. Um, that time, the Vuelta finished in Bilbao in 1962, not Madrid, however. Now, the first day, the first stage is a technical team time trial, 14.8 kilometers. It's going to showcase several of Barcelona's most iconic landmarks, including the Sagrada Familia. Some of you will already have noticed that that's also the motif for our Vuelta graphics this year. Um, after that, we've got stage two out and back from Barcelona into the sort of Catalan hinterland. And finishing on the Montjuic Hill, scene of many a famous cycling occasion in the past that you've already mentioned, Lionel, um, including the 1973 World Road Race won by Felice Gimondi. Stage three sees the first mountain stage, an Andorran blockbuster, finishing nearly 2,000 metres above sea level at Arinsal. Two relatively straightforward stages follow. So we go south, back into Catalonia for another summit finish at the Observatorio Astrofisico de Javalambre, where Angel Madrazo won in 2019. And famously, Lionel begged his wife to finally let him buy what in his post-race press conference that Ooh, day? I was there. I was there. He, well, he and his Burgos BH teammate Yetzabal pulled a fast one on their breakaway companion. They held off the GC group up on the climb there. I likened it to a kind of a... a uh, Spanish Mont Ventoux because of the observatory building up there. Uh, I I don't know. Was it what, what do you want? Speedboat. Was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't a speedboat. <laughs> wasn't a speedboat or a jet ski. Um, it was a PlayStation Four. Um, Angel Madrazo he lamented in his press conference that his wife was well. She's a she was a bookworm, an avid reader. wasn't much into. Didn't really approve of video games and um, wouldn't let him buy a PlayStation Four. Um, the good news for him, at least, and not his wife, was that the next morning Sony or Sony's Spanish division, uh, they delivered a PlayStation 4 to the start line, which he um, he proudly wielded on the start line the next morning. Who got the speedboat? Did yet um, get the speedboat? You know. um, anyway, so after the stage to have Alambre this year, we'd like to have a sprint finish in Oliva on the Costa Blanca, um, home to our friend and guest last week, Matt White. Um, then we've got what I'd call the first Cuesta de Cabra or goat track of the Vuelta with the Choret de Cati. Stage finished near Alicante, last conquered by Julian Alaphilippe a few years ago. Slightly less goaty summit finish on the Collado de la Cruz de Cava Caravaja the next day down in Murcia. Then takes us to our first rest day. It's a long drive for me then up to Valladolid where the race resumes with the only individual time trial of the Vuelta this year, 25 relatively flat kilometres. Um, we've then got a rather, I would say, punchy hilltop finish at the Laguna Negra, where Dan Martin won last time. Um, that looks ripe for roglification this year. Um, thereafter comes a flattish stage that looks ripe for crosswinds, finishing in Zaragoza. So then back into the Pyrenees with a stage that could belong in the Tour de France um, with a sense of the Urbisque, the Col de Spondel, and finally the Tourmalet, which is also where that stage will finish. More mountains the next day with the Port de la Roe, um, stage or scene, sorry, of a very definitive 
capitulation by Miguel Indurain in the 1996 Tour de France. And that's another summit finish that day, in fact, at Lara Belagua. Uh, transition stage with a little kicker near the end then takes us into the Basque Country and the second rest day. The last week in general, Lionel was a lot gnarlier than it was in 2022. Three goatee finales in a row. One short one in Bejes. One monstrous one on the Angliru. And the next one, pretty evil too, on La Cruz de Linares. It's one penultimate sprint or crosswind day to Iscar. Then we've got uh, stage 20, a.k.a. the Señores Fue un Placer, Yo Me Quedo Por Aquí, Superman Lopez stage, featuring no fewer than 10 classified climbs in the Sierra de Guadarrama, and where it could all still go a little bit kill bill. And finally, the Vuelta and the Grand Tour season concludes with the usual ceremonial stage and probably bunch sprint um, in Madrid, Lionel. Indeed. I mean, can I make a few observations? I mean, we're kicking off with a team time trial and it does strike me that the Vuelta is keeping the team time trial discipline alive almost single-handedly. It's the 16th year in 22 that the Vuelta has started with a team time trial. And in recent years, there have been some, well, sort of Keystone Cops type moments, haven't there? 2015, do you remember that? Along the coast from Puerto Bonus to Marbella. I mean, literally along the coast, wasn't it? Because they went on to the wooden walkways on the beach and the riders protested well, quite rightly that it wasn't really uh, suitable terrain for teams it's like a crazy golf course, yeah isn't it? for time trial bikes and uh, well they ran the stage but they didn't take the times towards the general classification uh, common sense prevailed and um, there were crashes in Nîmes. i remember richard moore and i were there uh, crashes in the warm-up actually uh, coming in and out of the amphitheater there in the center of Nîmes. Uh, quite a technical town center course and then 2019 in torre vieja um Astana won the stage, but there was some water on the course, uh, which came from a child's paddling pool that had either been emptied or had overflowed or something. And the water uh, made the road very slippery. And half of the Jumbo Visma team, including Primoz Roglic, fell off and lost time. Uh, Jumbo Visma, of course, won last year on home soil in the Netherlands in uh, Utrecht. And well, looking at their lineup, very strong again. But the Barcelona uh, course will likely be technical taking place in the city technical, centre. yeah. Yeah, there's talk of tram lines and obviously we won't know exactly how technical it is until they put the barriers down, which I guess will be on um, on Saturday. And um, a lot of corners, a lot of 90-degree corners, so that could be... It could be uh, a gnarly one. Um, Lion, just in general, I would say it's a, well, it's a hard route, um, as it always is in the Vuelta. It's a balanced route as well, though. I mentioned the fact that it's the last week in particular is harder than it was last week. It's difficult to to pick, actually, which one of the three weeks is the, the hardest um, in this year's Vuelta. Just generally, in terms of metres of climbing, slightly fewer than the Giro and, well, the Tour de France this year had about 4,000 metres of climbing more than than the Vuelta has, or 5,000 metres, in fact, more than the Vuelta has. But, of course, the stages are shorter in the Vuelta. And um, particularly that run of three summit finishes on, in the last week, 
um, with the Anglira right in the middle of, of that troika, I think could well be decisive and um, yeah, it's certainly going to be a very exciting line. Yeah, and as Matt White said last week, lots of breakaway potential, not least because the sprint field is light and the sprint field is light, as we'll discuss in uh, a little bit later, because there aren't really very many conventional opportunities for the sprinters, are there? I mean, there's... Uh, six at best i mean two of which look real breakaway territory really you're looking at uh tarragona oliva iscar and madrid as uh, the opportunities for bunch sprints and of course it all kicks off in terms of the gc race very early on not least because the team time trial is important to get off to not necessarily a, a great start but not to have any kind of um you know catastrophe on the opening day then you know Montjuic gives an opportunity for um somebody to test their legs and then it's straight into big mountains isn't it with andorra Montjuic yeah Montjuic could be really interesting because you say well you you didn't name it uh, among the sprint opportunities um I think it might be um there's a descent which then leads into the final kilometers the final kilometers sorry that does go uphill um it could it could lend itself to roglification and might not quite be hard enough but that's going to be a really interesting one i mean we should caveat all of this that you know vuelta sprints uh, lead us to believe that riders like magnus court or matteo trentine are bunch sprinters which of course they're handy Johnny exactly a yeah few, few yeah that's that's tends to be what happens but i remember you know looking at the the the, the route in 2017 and, and thinking that finishing in Andorra on stage three, as they did then, uh, might kind of, you know, finish the race before it really got started. And when Vincenzo Nibali won the stage and took the jersey, there was that sense of like, well, is this is this what we're in for over the next two and a half or so weeks? Uh, but the Vuelta never really pans out like that. And so having that Andorra stage early on, proper mountain stage, really, and it doesn't really sort of threaten to kill the race in terms of a of a GC spectacle, does it? It's kind of the the the, the first of many courses, and I think I counted four new uphill finishes in this welter, and a couple of them uh, that we already know about. Well, Havalambre, we've been there before. Uh, the Tourmalet is well. It always feels a bit like a fish out of water when the welter does this sort of thing i remember in 2016 robert hessink won the stage to the col d'obisque and it didn't really feel like the vuelta but it didn't really feel like the tour either it was kind of a strange sort of hybrid um that stage starts at formigal where there was a famous ambush which cost chris Froome that uh, vuelta and it's those sort of ambush opportunities that are just sort of lurking everywhere on this vuelta route uh, and the angli route well that stands above all as you know real set piece of of climbing it's incredibly steep i mean i remember being there what year was that that was 2017 wasn't it It was alberta contador's last hurrah in the vuelta and it's sort of high and well they were completely different weather systems at the bottom halfway up and at the top do you remember it was it suddenly misted over and it it felt almost like winter was drawing in up at the very top the wind was howling uh, but lower down the mountain it was baking hot and then at the bottom it it was rainy i don't know quite how that worked but that was what it was like that day and really you have to see it to believe it how steep it is it is incredibly steep difficult to walk up as well we had to didn't we 
newsflash from Lionel in the cycling podcast the Angleroo is high and steep <laughs> thanks for that Lionel. that's what we pay him the big bucks that's, for that's what people Lionel. are tuning in for I mean um, walking up it was no mean feat I have to say which is why I jumped into the back of a vehicle and left Fran Reyes to his own devices you know he was, I abandoned him to his fate he made it up somehow or other but uh, no I, I was looking to get out of walking it I have to say Lionel, lest we be tempted to indulge in any more speculation about the route, should we indulge in some... No, let's not indulge in any speculation. Just tell us, please, Lionel, who's riding this Vuelta España? Well, 176 riders are taking part, and the focus is really all on this kind of Remco Evenepoel as a defending champion versus Jumbo Visma versus UAE Team Emirates versus the rest. And, I mean, there's a significant names among the rest, but it's understandable that the focus is on... Uh, uh, primarily Remco versus Jumbo Visma because Jumbo Visma come into the race with Primoz Roglic who won the Giro in May and Jonas Vingegaard who won the Tour in July of course everybody knows that they are going for the Grand Slam of all three Grand Tours uh, never been done in men's cycling before by uh, the same team and it's not just the identity of those two team leaders and the kind of the the, the mouth-watering prospect of them working in tandem, you know, who is going to have the leadership, you know, when is one going to emerge over the other as the better bet, you know, which stages suit which riders, all of that to be discussed as the race unfolds. But the, the strength of the team behind them is, well, I can't remember a stronger Grand Tour team. We've got Sepp Kuss and Wilco Kelderman for the climbs. Robert Hessink, not just a good climber, but a very experienced rider. Dylan Van Bala, Attila Valter and Jan Tratnik. They've really got somebody for every type of stage in the Vuelta. And, I mean, can you remember a stronger Grand Tour no, team? No, it, it amused me that people were having this discussion on social media and someone suggested the 2005 T-Mobile Tour de France team, which was about as harmonious as the Roy family in succession. <laughs> um, and also didn't win. <laughs> No, <laughs> I would say Lavi Claire from 1986 stands out for me because, but only really in hindsight because obviously Greg LeMond won, Bernardino was second, Andy Hampston was fourth. I think Nicky Ruteman and Jean-Francois Bernard, off the top of my head, were both in the top they ten. All they all hated each other as well. That, well, they, exactly. That wasn't particularly harmonious uh, behind closed doors, was it? Or even on the road. But no, this is a real formidable team, and to have assembled that team, obviously, it's the end of a long season. You know, there's a few miles on the clock few kilometers on the clock for a lot of those riders isn't there that will be um you know that will be a factor but they look uh, formidable uh, and they go up against uae team emirates who not formidable but certainly stacked with talent they've got joao almeida and juan ayuso last year's revelation of the vuelta of course finishing on the podium two young riders um but two very talented riders um, they kind of complement one another, backed up by Mark Soler and Jay Vine. So no slouches in their uh, support in the mountains either, really. What about Garrett Thomas? Well, what about Garrett Thomas? I mean, he is the outright leader of Ineos Grenadiers, but he has a time in Aronsman. Egan Bernal, who is, well, he's still on the, the comeback trail, isn't he? This is another important Yeah, a bit of a race. surprising selection. Yeah, had a decent tour though didn't he and i think uh his his presence in the bus and uh around the team and uh you know it, it goes beyond just what he's able to do on the bike at the moment i think egan banal and maybe they think that another grand tour uh will help to you know speed uh, his recovery back to where i'm sure he hopes he uh, can get back to uh, whether he can 
you know, attain those previous heights of winning the Tour and the Giro. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, no, another big no race. Siv. No Pavel Sivakov. He's been overlooked. Uh, maybe in, in anticipation of him. Well, he is going to leave the team at the end of the year, go to UAE, but he's not been picked. He very much expected to be picked. Same with Luke Rowe. He's... Well, he's not leaving Ineos, as far as we know, but um, he hasn't been picked either. Uh, but they do have Filippo Ganna and Jonathan Castroviejo, both very handy for the team time trial on the opening day. And I'm sure Ganna will have his eyes on that uh, time trial in Valladolid as well. Uh, Movistar, the big Spanish team, go in with the probably the, the rider with the biggest question mark over him, Enric Mas. Of course, uh, crashed out of the Tour de France on the opening day. Uh, wasn't going well in the run-up to the Tour, it has to be said. Um, he does always come good at the Welter, though, doesn't he? Um, but he will, well, on paper, be the, the leader of the Movistar team. But there's some interesting riders in there, too. Uh, Ruben Guerrero and then a couple of youngsters. Uh, Lascano, who I mentioned, but also Ina Rubio, the young Colombian. Interesting to see how he gets on. Uh, Bahrain, victorious go in with Santiago Buitrago and Mikel Landa, Landa's final Grand Tour for Bahrain Victorious. So they'll be, you know, they'll be visible in the mountains, won't they? And they've also got Damiano Caruso, who's, uh, well, he's, he's ridden an awful lot of Grand Tours. He's been on the podium in the in the Giro, hasn't he? Um, getting a bit long in the tooth now, but uh, still a steady Eddie. And Bora Hansgrohe, very interesting. Alexander Vlasov, who's kind of flattered to deceive a little bit in the Grand Tours. He's had a top five, uh, you know, looking for that next kind of step up, I would suggest. And then, well, one of the most exciting prospects for the Grand Tours, 20-year-old Kian Uitgebrooks. Uh, got three weeks to try and crack the pronunciation there. The winner of last year's Tour de l'Avenir. And if you want to know a bit more about him, I mean, the episode really sticks into sticks in my mind because it was one of the uh, last significant uh, interviews that Richard Moore did for the Cycling Podcast back in January 2022. Uh, well worth a listen. Go back through the feed and, and find our long interview with Bora Hansgrohe's 20-year-old Belgian sensation. I'll spare another butchering of his surname just for now. Uh, Groupama FDJ, as I said before, very young lineup. Roman Gregoire, Lenny Martinez, um, both extremely young riders, neither of them even 21 yet. Um, Samuel Watson and Lewis Askey, two young British riders as well. But they've got two riders who in their own separate way kind of characterise that unpredictable nature of the Vuelta. Rudy Mollard, who won a stage and took the red jersey for a day last year, and Michael Storer, who is sort of hot, cold, uh, turns on his form like a tap, really, doesn't he? He's either brilliant or anonymous, but was one of the outstanding riders in the Vuelta a couple of years ago. Need to also mention Lidl Trek because they have Kenny Ellisond still in their ranks. Still think of Kenny Ellisond as a young rider, but it's 10 years ago since he won on Jesus the Angry Christ, I know, I know. It's amazing, isn't it, how the time goes. Uh, yeah. One Pedro Lopez, who led the Giro. Uh, I mean, he's the only rider in the field who actually saw the eruption of Vesuvius, I think. <laughs> Hang on a minute. He witnessed it. Well, let's... let's in the AD 70, 79. Italia. He's now he's now 32. Yeah, young rider. Uh, <laughs> Balka Molima, who I don't think of as a young rider, but another sort of steady Eddie, but not really uh, Grand Tour contention uh, these days. 
Sorry, I should have mentioned uh, in Bora Hansgrohe, of course, they've got Emmanuel Buchmann, who's going to win because the last time the Vuelta started in Barcelona, a German won overall. Um, lastly, on the GC front, I guess, uh, EF Education Easy Post, Hugh Carthy, another rider who goes very well or struggles, doesn't he? I mean, he's had some great days, not least winning on the Angliru. Um which year was that? That was that the last time they went to the Angliru. I think it was, wasn't it? That was the it was the COVID Vuelta, twenty twenty. Um, it was the second day of the weekend, which re- really revealed to the world that Jonas Vingegaard was a rider with. I wouldn't say grand tour winning potential. We didn't realise that at the time. But the previous day, he'd been a stage finish at La Farapona. And he rode the whole way up, paced the, the peloton, um, the whole way up La Farapona. And there was a headwind that day, so there were no significant attacks. Um, but it was it was really striking. Um, and then he sort of repeated the feat the next day on the Angliru. And thereafter, we started to consider him as a rider with significant potential. Yeah, I think that's one of the other aspects of the welter, isn't it? There's the obvious kind of GC battle. And then there's the fact that in retrospect, we'll look back and we'll see this race as significant in terms of a rider's development uh, or, or breakthrough. I mean, 2019, Tere Pogacar was the breakout star, wasn't he? We'd already seen him do some pretty impressive stuff earlier in the season. But to, to come into a Grand Tour and win the stages that he won, uh, I think he well, he, did he win, was it three? Three stages in 2019. That's yeah. it, yeah. Just before we move on, uh, I mentioned how few opportunities there are for sprinters. Well, there's not that many sprinters on the start sheet anyway. Certainly not the sort of Premier League sprint talent that you would expect to see at the Tour de France. Or, uh, Well, I mean, it does kind of lead us this question that we've talked about a few times about how the, the, the race... Uh, routes are sort of killing sprinting in a way but it does present opportunities for other riders i would say the top tier sprinters in this welter are caden groves of alpacin de Kernink, who won a stage of the welter last year uh, juan sebastian milano of uae team emirates as well he's obviously in good form hanging, having won in burgos last week he's won in the welter before then there's kind of alberto dinese of dsm ugo ofstetter of arkea and marine vandenberg of ef education I mean, we're starting to... David Chimalai and Brian Cockar of Cofidis. Mm. Yeah, I would look out for Govacar at Bahrain um, as well. He might be... Well, he's a name that not many people will be familiar with, but um, won a stage in Burgos last year. And um, yeah, he, he could be... Certainly someone who will finish in the top five um, in, in the bunch of sprints. Similarly, Milan Menton of Lotto Destiny. Um, you know, quick... Again, it's uh, it's unpredictable. The sprints in the Vuelta are unpredictable. Uh, so we may well see some riders come to the fore that we're not expecting to, uh, well, at this point. Lionel, for the avoidance of any further speculation uh, about the runners and riders, at this point, shall we focus on last year's Vuelta España winner, um, Remco Evenepoel, who's been in the news a lot over recent weeks, of course, because we still don't really, well, we 
we're pretty confident at this point that he's still going to be at Sudar Quickstep. But, um, you know, he gave an interview last week, long interview with Lantern Rouge, in which um, he finally sort of addressed his future or he addressed it again, maybe in the hope, maybe in the anticipation that this would quash, quell the fervid speculation. Um, it, it didn't really, um, as we're going to hear in just a moment. Um, but at this point, shall we hear from someone who knows Remco Avenapool probably better than we do and we'll certainly be following his exploits at the Vuelta a España as well Renat Schotter he's a regular on the cycling podcast and familiar voice to most of you now he'll be commentating on the race for Sporta in Belgium and Lionel well I caught up with Renat earlier in the week to ask him about Remco and the other Belgians at the Vuelta Well, buenos dias, uh, Renat. Not in Barcelona, uh, unfortunately for you, I guess. But you are looking forward to the race. You're going to be working on the race. You're in, I guess you're at home in Bruges at the moment. You're certainly in Belgium. Um, we're going to get straight to the, well, what, what we thought was going to be the, one of the hot topics or certainly the backdrop for Remco Avenepoel's um, Vuelta a España, Renat. This continuing speculation about Ineos. Now, of course, he did a long interview with Lantern Rouge last week, which I don't know whether it was designed to sort of pour some cold water on some of the speculation. He said that he was, you know, he hoped he didn't have to answer these questions continually during the Vuelta. Um, however, I can tell you that on Friday, the day after the interview dropped, my phone was red hot with Belgian journalists asking whether, well, what I knew because they'd heard that it was still happening, that he w- could maybe still go to Ineos. Renard, what did you what did you make of it all? Um, thinking about it in the context of this Vuelta and the, the backdrop to this Vuelta and Remco's Vuelta. Oh, the situation is not clear. That's uh, a certainty. So um, it might be ongoing behind the scenes, but um, whether or not it is, we, we basically we don't know. So um, we have to wait and see what, what's going to happen there. Uh, so um, the one thing I, I um, take with me out of the whole episode was the fact that, that um, Remco's dad is also his, his uh, yeah, the guy that's doing his affairs and I don't think that's a good situation, neither for the dad, neither for Remco. So I think in the future they might, whatever the outcome of this story is, they might to have to reconsider that. Yeah. And of course, well, linked to all of this, I think, I think you'd agree with me, is Remco's feeling about his team possibly not being strong enough. And he also talks about this a lot in the Lantern Rouge interview that um, he, well, he knew the team was going to, was going to look for reinforcements. Indeed, Mikel Landers coming, a couple of others are coming. Um, he doesn't think they're far away necessarily from being where they need to be um, as a Grand Tour team. But th- there's been a lot of focus on the team at this Vuelta as well. And people are suggesting it's weak compared to Jumbo Visma in particular. Now, any, any team would look weak in comparison to Jumbo Visma and the team that they've picked. Um, what did you make of it? I think the team... Uh, he's now going to have in this upcoming Volta is as at least as strong as last year's team, because um, okay, you don't have Ale Philippe there, but Ale Philippe um, still has his own agenda, and let's not forget last year he crashed out of the Volta, so I don't know if he, if his role was that important in that uh, Tour of Spain. Um, as far as the remarks about the strength of Remco's team. Um, I do remember one long conversation with him on that topic already in January in the, at the tour of uh, San Juan. 
and I th just think that's that's like um, something going through the season, but it's nothing new. That concern from the Remco party to have a, a team as strong as possible to uh, to go for his Grand Tour ambition. So there's nothing new there, basically. And it, uh, I keep seeing it um, uh, or reading it in, in media like it's anything news, but it's not. It's something that has been behind the scenes and during the whole season. And I, I, don't, I just think that it's important for him to have all the weapons to to master his Grand Tour ambitions and it basically just uh, illustrates his, his big ambition. He wants to win the Tour de France as soon as possible. I think that's the, the one big reasoning behind and um, having the strength of Jumbo Visma here um, in this Tour of Spain is a, a very good experiment to confront a possible Jumbo Visma uh, powerhouse in next year's Tour de France. So for me, this is like a general rehearsal somehow Renat, it always strikes me that we we th we think in theoretical terms about you know i've seen people already talking on social media about oh well yumbo visma are going to have kuss there and they're going to have roglic and then you know even bora will have two guys and ineos will have one guy and uae will have three guys but these scenarios they might come to pass once in the Vuelta for three kilometers. Uh, you know, it, it's not something that I don't think is going to penalize him every day or repeatedly. I mean, where where can you imagine him suffering because his team is not as strong as Jumbo Visma, for example, and even UAE and, and others? Now we have to to look at the um, the the courses then really uh, methodically because uh, it'll all depend on race situations. If there's a long flat uh, section between two big climbs then that's one moment he might get into trouble but let's be fair and honest there's not a lot of tour or vuelta stages like that probably and and also in the tour and 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 the giro in the past you will see that from time to time but those moments are quite rare so i i tend to to downsize that that aspect as well because in a grand tour what it comes to is is your your current shape and I think that's a more important question is he as good as, as last year in the Tour of Spain I think he looks like that for sure he's probably even better but uh, we've seen in, in the, the most recent edition of the Tour de France that the values Vingegaard was pushing were record values so he will have to step up in order to compete with uh, the Jumbo Visma uh, couple if you ask me so that that is the, the most important thing and I think the strength of the team, uh, especially in a climbing course like the Vuelta, is is important, but it's it's not the uh, the ultimate or the the thing that's gonna. Yeah, you might lose a Vuelta or a Grand Tour because your team is not there, but also Pogacar has proven that you don't have you don't need a team to win the Tour de France, as the the Tour de France 2020 has proven. So a lot will depend on on a couple of race situations if they ever happen. In the other hand, uh, it'll just be, yeah, okay, I know it's a cliche about the legs. Mm. And, Renard, the again, the sort of mood music of this Vuelta, um, and it's a sort of constant narrative because there's so much in cycling. We always get this sort of shadow boxing in the sense that we don't get that many direct confrontations necessarily between the best guys. Um, so we all sort of hypothesize about what is the real hierarchy, even... Remco himself um, was asked about this in the interview last week. Um, 
where is he in relation to Vingegaard, Pogacar, Roglic? Um, how do you see those, well, that top tier or the second tier or the third tier? How do you see it? That's a difficult... I mean, we'll find uh, out. That, that's, uh, that's a very difficult question, of course. I mean, uh, if you look at last year's Tour of Spain, then he was at least at the same level. But um, having that Tour de France now from this summer... Uh, in in our minds, it's difficult to say because is Vinegard going to copy uh, or at least do ninety five percent of his tour performance? Yeah, then then Evenepoel might be in big trouble. Um, how about Roglic? Has he stepped up um, after after the Giro? Even um, difficult to say, but you you might think so. So. I would think that that he's not a favorite at all, and that's an interesting situation for for Evenepoel. Um, he wasn't even planned at the beginning of the season, as we all know, to do this Vuelta. I see this as a bonus Grand Tour in his um, evolution towards a Tour de France rider, and I don't think that the pressure will be like if he doesn't make a success out of it, then this is a complete failure. I think it's more of the once again a big rehearsal for the big one next year than it is a goal in itself because he's stated before um, Liège Wilts against the clock which he managed superbly on a course that wasn't maybe his um, there's Lombardy next I think Lombardy next is his true main goal of the after season and not this Tour of Spain but I do think that he will be okay considering his uh, performance level at um, at Wilts in that time trial. Then again, one time trial doesn't say a lot about a Grand Tour. It's interesting. I always think of Grand Tour riders or the, the, the best Grand Tour riders in terms almost like prize fighters. And, you know, the Pogacar, for example, he had a sort of unbeaten record. He had this cape of invincibility until last year in the Tour. And I still feel that, okay, Remco hasn't won every Grand Tour that he has participated in because he's had issues in the two Giro's that he's done but I do feel that he has that at the moment he he almost does have an unbeaten record of a record of kind of perfect knockouts it's only, okay it's only one one and one um, and thinking about last year's Vuelta but I do feel that he would lose I, I do feel his aura would be dented someone and this is one of the fascinating things about this Vuelta um, someone out of Vingegaard and Remco is going to come out of this Vuelta diminished with their status diminished I would say or their aura diminished uh, yeah, yeah I understand your reasoning but the thing is I I look at it at a different way in, in that way that um, if he hadn't um, confronted uh, the, the the corona story in, in the Giro he wouldn't he would not be here at the start so this makes this Grand Tour this Vuelta the more interesting because now we have a situation we would only have in the next Tour de France apart from Pogacar everybody's here kind of so this makes it very, very interesting. Maybe this is even the most interesting Grand Tour of the year, after all, which is a bit unusual for the Vuelta, but it makes it um, very, very good and interesting to follow and to report on. So um, ha, um, there's so many uh, pros and contra to be said about this Grand Tour that, that uh, I don't know where to start or even to end because... Yeah. Well, well, let's end. I was going to end with you telling us about some of the other Belgians 
who are taking part and some of the other was the sources of interest for the Belgians you're going to be commentating for uh, Belgian TV every day and I guess it's going to be very keenly followed mainly because of Remco but there are a lot of Belgians in the field um, who else Kian, should we be looking out for Kian, Kian, Kian Oudebroek's his Grand Tour debut I mean he's specifically prepared himself for this tour of Spain and um, they skipped the Sibiu tour I know nobody speaks about the Romanian Sibiu tour but the uh, Bora Hans Grohe made a project of this Grand Tour with Kian Uydebroeks and I wouldn't be surprised if he's the next big thing and even on a short term notice uh, if everything goes according to plan and he's able to to pull off or to even um, do what he has done in, in his previous stage races then he might be even a top five contender uh, that looks exaggerated uh, to say that now but uh, it is possible if you look at his results in uh, in Tour de Suisse in um, Tour de Romandie uh, he's pulled off uh, four top tens in previous stage races this year and they they give him all the freedom to to, to, go, to go for his own chances um, besides Glasov so Kian Uitbroeks is the second Belgian to watch out in this Tour of Spain which makes it even more interesting for a Belgian viewer all the way long and Renat it was worth having you on it's always worth having you on but it was doubly worth it this time because you've reminded us of how we pronounce Uitebroeks <laughs> Renat look forward to well you won't be in Spain but um, I'm sure our Belgian listeners will look forward to hearing from you during the Vuelta Renat pleasure thank you. Daniel purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free see better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts oh 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 O'Reilly I am with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lionel. Good evening. This is our first day of coverage from the Vuelta a España, though we're not actually there yet. Daniel Freib is there, but we haven't managed to track him down today. The Alto de Aitana, the final climb of the Vuelta and we were anticipating a bit of a showdown a big grandstand showdown between Chris Froome and Nilo Kitt where are we Lionel? we're in not Spain we're in Nîmes the most Spanish of all French towns I would say well it is, it is today it certainly is today because the through the climb of the Angliru where uh, well, the bus that was taking us to the finish line was stopped by the Spanish police Chris Froome has won the race completing the double adding the Vuelta to the Tour de France that he won in July. And Hello and welcome to Malaga, or to Malaga, as they would say in Spain. My name's Lionel Burney, and you're joining the Cycling Podcast for three weeks of Grand Tour coverage from the Vuelta a España, the final Grand Tour of the season. Final claim of the Vuelta, of the 20th stage of the Vuelta, Simon Yates defending his red jersey. Uh, we were... A few moments ago in Lee Howard's cafe. That's a reminder of last year's Vuelta a España, won by Britain's Simon Yates, ahead of Enrique Mas and Miguel Angel Lopez. Welcome to the Costa Blanca. My name is Lionel Burney, and this is the first People episode. People updated as it was unfolding before me, but um, Tadej Pogacar, 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 what are we calling him? Pogacar. Uh, Pogacar, Pogacar. He won the stage. We're going to be talking about him a lot, I think, for the next decade. The riders accept the conditions. We saw a really thrilling race, but it was one of three uh, big races going on today. Um, 
you, Francois, in Marseille are kind of, you were right in the center of the action in a way because with the Giro happening in Italy, the Vuelta in Spain and the Pan up. In Daniel, Belgium, you've reached right the end. The, the Vuelta's reached the end. It seems to have been a great success from a, a health point of view, a logistical point of view. Um, I, I saw a tweet of yours that, that said that although the Giro and the Tour had standout tracks, he had so little time to pick himself up from the disappointment of the Tour. To go to the Vuelta and perform as he did, what's more impressive about Rog? Is it, is it you know, the, the physical performance? Daniel, thank goodness for that. Oh, the Vuelta's I underway. Very, I was very tense. I was very nervous. I get very nervous before Grand Tour start. Well, not as nervous as poor old Pelayo Sanchez Mayo, who's been sitting up there in the doorway of the cathedral here Feeding in Burgos. To, you know, getting the right clothing and so forth. Oh, here they come. And, and it looks like attacked with Rog. Oh, my word. Well, we haven't been able to see footage, so we don't know what's happening here. Light at the moment is Superman, because, well, a few minutes ago, we haven't seen any of this, as I don't think anyone at home watching on TV has seen it, but we heard that Superman Lopez agreed at Movistar Tactics on the podium. Oh, what a stunning setting for our podium uh, presentation. Well, it's our final pilgrim, and it's the winner of this West Espana. Sweet worries, huh, but, uh, yeah. It didn't help that Roglic was coming back. Like, he, he crashed, didn't he? Uh, a new step in our uh, team development. But uh, yeah, now it's all about keep fighting and, and keep the head strong. And uh... Patrick, last thing. Am I right? You don't want him to go to the Tour de France next year? No. Because? Well, we had a plan. And sometimes you have to follow the plan. Have a good evening, Patrick. I'm sure you will. Well, I know that was uh, obviously a, a bittersweet um, trip down memory lane for us. Uh, a montage of our memories from Vueltas of Yore, starting in 2016, ending that uh, montage ended with, well, uh, the last day at the Vuelta last year, Patrick Lefebvre saying that he intended to stick to the plan with Remco Avenepoel, that plan involved not doing the Tour de France uh, this year. Um, we didn't think he was going to do the Vuelta either, but he sort of changed plans, didn't he, after the Giro. We only found out a few weeks ago that he was going to do the Vuelta. Um, but Lionel, yeah, some a lot of a lot of poignant memories um, from those Vueltas a España for both of us. Yeah, yeah, it just makes me realise, listening to that, just how different the Vuelta is to the Giro d'Italia and the Tour de France, doesn't it? I mean, I've said this before, well, I've said it, earlier the the welter is a holiday grand tour the tour de france is business and the the giro is kind of you know backpacking isn't it it's kind of travel log it's sort of exploring and uh you know there's a sort of it's, it's what if you do three, it's where you choose to go on holiday i think it was certainly for me if anyway the three if the three grand tours were combined into a single haircut hairstyle what would they be oh wow it'd be a, a mullet with something else um I don't know, a mullet with maybe some dreadlocks somewhere. I don't the know. The tour is a very straight back and sides, isn't it? You know, sort of haircut for the office. I yeah, mean, we're that's talking, the business. We're talking the, male haircuts. The business at the front. Yeah, maybe the, the, the tour is the business at the front. Um, the the oh. welter could be the mullet at oh, the back, the mane at the back. And I don't know what the Giro would oh. be. Maybe the hair dye, maybe the pink hair dye. Yeah, possibly. The uh, pink uh, hair dye. The Giro is a top knot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, in line it was it was um, 
it was quite amusing um, to hear well, Richard in 2019 in Andorra um, on the day of Tadej Pogacar's definitive breakthrough mm. at the Vuelta a España. Obviously, um, as clairvoyant as ever, Richard could see at that point that Tadej Pogacar was someone who was going to be very prominent for a very long time in professional cycling. And, um, well, he was certainly right about that. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it, to go back to those moments when someone announces themselves on the world stage. I mentioned Vingegaard doing it in La Farapona in Asturias in 2000. But um, Pogacar, as spectacular as that 2019 breakthrough was, um, very, very difficult to foresee what has come to pass since then. Indeed, yeah. And just on like the kind of the, the, the different faces of the welter, I mean, uh, I think of the welter in terms of shades of, is it, is it brown or is it green? Uh, is it, um, what, is it ham on or is it ham, egg and chips? Because you can have a bit of everything at the Vuelta. You can be one day uh, down on the coast with all the holiday makers with their pints of lager and, uh, you know, turning very pink in the sunshine. And then you can be in the most, you know, beautiful green area of the Basque Country or Asturias. And so it's uh, it's, it's probably the race with the most, um, you know, sort of diversity in, in terms of the landscape. And certainly in the recent past, I'm talking the last 10, 15 years, probably really since uh, ASO uh, stepped in to kind of take over Unipublic, the company that owned the, the Vuelta, and was sort of running it into the ground a little bit because there was a period in the sort of early 2000s um, mid well so 2004-5 kind of the nadir of the Vuelta where it just seemed to me like uh, it was a succession of stages that would run on dead straight roads through through nothing with an awful lot of sort of just dry brown countryside and the race has become a lot a lot more telegenic and uh yeah some some fond memories of, of being there um i always think of the the day simon and i were in asturias and we checked into a very strange uh as simon described it a bit of a wild card of a hotel it was in the middle of absolutely nowhere high up on the hill um senor came to greet us he had uh, a very large kind of mountain dog which started barking at us and that set off wild dogs that were clearly living in the valley uh, all that was missing was a kind of cartoonish crack of lightning above the the rather spooky looking house that we were staying in we were ushered inside uh, taken up to our rooms uh, there was a bat in my room which fluttered around causing well i mean it made me jump out of my skin uh, he prepared a meal which can best be described as challenging it was a combination of um uh, well, gristle and bone in stew. Uh, we found that quite tough to eat. And he played the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah, on a loop. Various different versions of this song, which was slightly disconcerting. Um, and also on the big screen behind him, he sat and watched us eat. I mean, he had no English. We had no Spanish to speak of. So we were communicating in French a little bit. Um, and that was the best we could do. Uh, but he sat and watched us eat, uh, which was spooky enough. But then we noticed on the big screen behind him was a kind of wildlife 
program um he was on it as the kind of wildlife expert you know survival expert a sort of spanish ray mears type character i didn't know that part yeah of the story. and uh, then he he in this um program he was wearing quite a distinctive kind of outdoorsy hat and he kind of led our gaze over to the mantelpiece and there was a a clear um skull a glass skull with that hat sitting on it and i just thought at this moment is is this is this it wow. is this kind is like this my last an night Asturian, on the <laughs> an Asturian bush tucker man meets freddy krueger um <laughs> Lionel, you haven't been back to the you haven't been back to the world since um Lionel, <laughs> talking about breakout stars um breakout stars on this uh what that spaniel we've, well, we've mentioned with renard we spoke about ken uterbrooks uh roman gregoire i would say is a good bet for Groupama. very fast finishing very versatile rider he's already won the gc in dunkirk four days of dunkirk and limousin just recently just the other week and um, 20 years old max Poole, who rode that fantastic uh dauphine where he was in the best young riders jersey he had a tricky day on the last day finishing uh, the bastille in grenoble but he is a real of all of the british riders sort of populating um, scattered around the world tour um, he's probably the most interesting I would say from a GC point of view Oscar Onley as well Scottish rider who's a little bit punchier than Max Paul probably will enjoy the Vuelta he's also riding for DSM and also for um, Jaco Alula the Ethiopian Wale Beira um, 21 years old, has had top 10s in Castilla-Leon and the Tour of Austria this year. So they're going to be there. Well, they'll be my they're my nominations for potential breakout riders. There are many though. There are many potential breakout riders in the water. Well, maybe we should look out for them on a on an almost daily basis. If anything um, anything leaps out, we should think of some kind of appropriate prize for the the, the best young rider. I mean. A, a, you know, at the tour, it's a white jersey, isn't it? I mean, a bit of a bland prize, that, isn't it? We'll come up with something a bit more imaginative before Saturday. Yeah, we, I think I, we might get the opportunity to talk about Vuelta jerseys of yore as well in the course of the three weeks because there have been some crackers over the years. The Giro's had some really fascinating to minor classifications. The Vuelta has as well. The Vuelta once had a tiger print jersey. Um, we'll hear more about that maybe one day. Are you, are you going to mention the blue points jersey with the yellow fish on? Do you remember that? Oh, no, I didn't know no. about that. I didn't know about that. Maybe we talk about that I'll as well. I'll have to research um, that Maybe one. we'll do a, a top 10 one day. Um, Lionel, you say he won't be the breakout rider of this Vuelta Espana. Um, because he, you, you described someone earlier in the pod has been long in the tooth. Now, I'm not going to say our friend Larry Warbass um, has been around the block. But um, he's an experienced rider now. And, uh, well, we will have the privilege of hearing from Larry on a very regular basis at the Vuelta Espana in much the same way that we did at the Giro d'Italia. Larry's going to have his own segment in the podcast most days. Um, I'm not going to reveal what it's going to be called right now. But um, when I caught up with Larry, or he caught up with you listeners, shall we say, um, on his way to the start of the Vuelta yesterday. Hey guys, so I'm recording here just outside of uh, Barcelona. Um, got here for the Vuelta this morning. It is Wednesday before the race, and yeah, the race starts on Saturday with a team time trial. So um, yeah, been a nice uh, break since Giro. I had, yeah, I did a unbound the gravel race and then i had uh yeah some time off got to spend some time 
uh, at home in Nice. So that was really cool. Spent some time with my girlfriend and then, yeah, um, <clears throat> went to Andorra to altitude, uh, did an altitude camp for 18 days there. Then I raced in Poland, the world championships in Burgos before coming here. So I've actually had quite a heavy program since. Um, but yeah, I feel pretty ready. Um, trying to be as adapted to the heat as I can. Uh, Burgos was really hot. And then, yeah, I was doing a few different things to try to get ready at home. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to have a hot few days and maybe a hot Vuelta, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty uh, normal and to be expected. So happy to be here and yeah, I'm happy to, uh, you know, be contributing a bit to the second podcast throughout the course of the race. So yeah, really looking forward to uh, getting stuck in and uh, hopefully getting in some breakaways and having some good content to talk to you guys about. So it should be a good one. Talk to you all soon. Okay, Lionel, that was Larry. We're going to hear from Larry, as I said, um, very often, very often during the World Espana. And I think Larry's got a good chance, a good shot at a stage win in this world because I think we're going to see a lot of breaks go to the finish. And we also hear a lot, I think, from our other good friend, um, American friend in the World of Peloton, Joe Dombrowski, who will be riding for Astana. Um but let's move our attention, let's switch our attention back to the battle for general classification. Lionel, we heard about Remco from Renart. Um, shall we hear about probably, I think, most people's favourite for victory in this World Die España? Certainly the bookmaker's favourite for victory. Um, they've got the rider we're going to talk about in a moment, top of the list. Then Primoz Roglic, second favourite. Remco Evenepoel, third favourite. Um, the rider I'm talking about, of course, is the Tour de France champion Jonas Vingegaard, the Dane, the great Dane, Ving the Merciless. Um, our own great Dane is Brian Nygaard and well I thought it would be an opportune time to get Brian's thoughts about Vingegaard and the Vuelta earlier this week so we've heard from Renard let's now hear from Brian Nygaard well he's back El Baron for the purposes of the next couple of weeks because Brian Nygaard will be joining us regularly on La Vuelta a España. Brian, we were discussing before we spoke today that the Danes and La Vuelta have not had, well, they haven't had the same sort of illustrious relationship historically or fruitful relationship that the Danes have had with other Grand Tours. No Danish rider has ever finished on the podium of the Vuelta. However, they have had a lot of success in stages and so on and so forth. What about your relationship with the Vuelta, Brian? I absolutely love the Vuelta. How could you not? You know, my yeah. preferences when it comes to travel and combining that with a with a big bike race. I, I really love the Vuelta. And I was, I've been in Denmark now for a, a month, which has meant that summer has been an absolute illusion because there's been like two days of, of sunshine. I'm heading back to Italy tomorrow, so I'll, I'll be recording in more uh, comfortable uh, circumstances. But yeah, I really like the Vuelta. I have good memories from it. Uh, I think the last full one I did, though, uh, dates back to like the mid-noughties, uh, 03 or 05. Uh, and then I've just had stints of it. The good battle days, exactly. But then after that, I've just had stints, you know, a, a week here and a week there. Uh, and I miss it. I, I'm Obviously, I, I, I can't tell if this has changed much, but parts of me big part of me hopes that it hasn't because it's a very comfortable work environment yeah very very comfortable grand tour to move around uh, 
Um, if one was to design a Grand Tour, that would be more or less the scale one would go for. Maybe uh, the Giro has slightly more of a sense of occasion at times, um, slightly bigger crowds, bigger towns we visit. But otherwise, as you say, the Vuelta is sort of the most, certainly the most um, logistically leisurely Grand Tour. And um, Brian, Jonas Vingar and La Vuelta a España, to be or not to be, that is the question. Talk to us about this decision of his to do the Vuelta and what's behind it besides this um, goal that the team have, we know, to win all three Grand Tours in a season, which has never been done yeah. before. Well, then, yeah, I was actually quite surprised. You know, the news came out, I think, on the last day of the Tour, and I was sort of thinking, well, what's what's the idea behind it? And and I think that I I'm, I'm thinking there's several thoughts behind it because the the original plan was obviously for Roglic to come back and have it as his last big goal of the season, and then adding Vingegaard is either adding potentially the strongest. I mean, Vingegaard and Roglic have ridden that Walter together before with with great success, uh, but I think doing it now is is probably forces them to accept that they're going to have to race it with two captains and two potential winners. Brian, did you, can I, if I can just interrupt, did you read anything into, I know people online have, um, they've interpreted from the, the press release that Jumbo Visma put out, they put Vingegaard's name first and Roglic's name second. And we don't, we, we don't have the race numbers yet. We don't know whether um, Vingegaard will be number one in the team or Roglic, um, according to the race numbers. But should we read anything into that? I mean, you've been in teams as well. You know the sort of inner workings, press releases, how they're put together. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's obviously it's not done alphabetically. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say that there would be any major strategic consideration behind them having him on first on the list. And also, ultimately, the beauty of any stage racing and, and also very much so the Walter is that the race will eventually decide, you know. I mean, it's 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 gravity over press release here, isn't it? Like the the whomever is in the best position on after the first really hard stages will potentially be a captain, depending on how much time they've lost. But I I thought honestly when I saw the the news that I was like I said before I was really surprised. You know, last year when when Vingegaard won the tour, he basically disappeared from the from the face of the earth. For 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 a very long time, you know, it's, it's like his next race after that was the uh, uh, Tour Croatia, and then he did Lombardy, and I, I, I'm I'm sure because he said that himself, he's he's he struggled with the aftermath of of being a very successful and sought after person, and and he certainly uh, gave you the impression that he wasn't particularly comfortable with that role either, um, so seeing that he would at some point. Now, obviously, earlier than he would normally would have to start training and training hard again and and adjusting towards the second goal. The welter might seem uh, have have ended up looking like a pretty attractive proposition to him because it means that he you know he's he's back at the races. He doesn't have to sort of schedule a million other things. You know, he goes into a, a part of the year where, I mean, there's obviously going to be a decent amount of media there. You know, including you, but it's not. I think honestly, he's more comfortable being in that situation than having to be at home uh, training in Denmark or wherever he wants to be, and then having to deal with all the other obligations that pretty naturally follow uh, when you win the Tour de France. So I, I honestly think that that's a small, obviously not the deciding part of his consideration, but I think it's, I think it's, it's played into his his choice of doing the world as as strange as that might sound. But he he, he doesn't race much, uh, and I think that. 
feeling in in the Danish public and the Danish media is that they 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 would like to see him race more. And this it, this is a serious thing going into the Welter, but at least you know should he not should he be overcooked or tired after the tour, it doesn't change the overall potential for your movies. I mean they are the outright favorites on the inner parameter. Brian, a couple of things. You mentioned, well, gravity making the decision for Jumbo Visma. Presumably, it will start to make that decision pretty early um, after three stages with the summit finish in um, Andorra. That's going to be interesting because that will, you know, uh, that will dictate, I suppose, to a large extent, the chain of command, at least for the first part of the race. Um, and I suppose, secondly, you know, we got a hint in Burgos. By deduction, we can sort of compare Adam Yates to Primoz Roglic and say that Roglic was climbing as well as Yates on the short climbs, at least, if not better, and then beating, well, he beat him, didn't he, um, at the Lagunas de Neila. What's your sense, what's your hunch about how Roglic and Vingegaard are going to measure up as far as climbing is concerned? And also, of course, Remco Evenepoel. Yeah, well, coming back to coming back to what you said initially about the race being so hard early on that it will eventually decide who is probably going a little bit better. There is also the risk of let's say that that Vingegaard will win that stage and take the jersey. There's still a lot of racing after that, and any sort of weakness or fatigue or accumulated fatigue that would still be uh, left at his legs later on. I think I don't think they worry about it, but it would potentially involve a risk in putting you know, in brackets, the wrong guy in the jersey from the start, getting a significant margin. But whomever, uh, either it being Roglic or Vingard, they'll have the other guy trailing behind. I, I I doubt that any of them, just from this level that they have, even if they're not in top shape, they'll still be pretty close in the GC. I don't, I don't really foresee any of them losing that amount of time. Having said that, though, it, it is like the opposite ends of... Uh, how to prepare your performance plan towards a Grand Tour because Roglic has planned extremely specifically for this and we all know when Roglic does that he he very very rarely misses and he has such a great feeling I think with the welter and he knows exactly what he needs to do and when so I, I would still have him as the more safe bet uh, with the Vingegaard you know it's not a term I would use about him no, normally being a joker you know being uh, someone who they can, you know, they can they can bring in and to reel in, you know, any kind of breakaway or any kind of uh, counter attack and still be there and, and with a with a with a fighting chance to win the overall. And then we've we've said before, and, and usually I would say that about Pogaccia, it takes two riders to beat him, right? And and uh, if you look at the competition that, and and with no disrespect to anyone else who's been, if you look at the competition that Evenepoel has had in the Vuelta. He'll face a, a, a lot bigger challenge this year with those two guys. And, you know, half of the time the media's been talking about Remco Evenepoel. It hasn't been about his chances in the world. So it has been about how f- you know, feeble or how underperforming his potential support will be in the world. And if you look at those, if you stack those teams up against each other, a quick step against Jumbo Visma, he, he, it doesn't look like a comfortable situation for him. He, he's not he, uh, being, you know, the defending champion, he's he's he has a lot to worry about when it comes to that, and and he can potentially only mark one of them. And I think the race with the architecture of the race and the uh, the climbing you know, volume in the Volta, th- th- there's no way he can rely on his time trial to even out any differences made. That's uh, that's for certain. Brian, and then just finally, 
We talked about, well, cycling fever in golfing Denmark. Um, never really goes away in Denmark. But um, how closely is this going to be followed? Um, have you got a sense? I've, got, I've already spoken to some colleagues. I know Danish colleagues who are going to the race. But um, how hysterical is the media coverage going to be of the Vuelta Española? Well, I think the TV2, which is the broadcaster that wants the rights to broadcast the, the world. So they're, they're super thrilled about it. Because one thing that's, that struck me, uh, and I'm, I'm, it's, I'm not sure if it's the same um, in, in other countries, the amount of following and the amount of the, the ratings on TV will, will double if there's a Danish rider with a potential of winning. And it, it, it's strange because it's, you'd think after, you know, Danish TV started to show the tour regularly broadcasted from the, late, uh, from the early 90s. But it's always been dependent. The interest on it has always been dependent on a, on a Danish rider doing well, and it's the, mm. the racing might be the best in the world, and it might be super interesting and dramatic. But if there's not a Danish rider in the mix, people are there's a little bit of a meh feeling about it. So I'm I'm sure that they are thrilled, you know. And the the tour is, is just above and beyond anything. But with Vingegaard, with a with a with a very realistic chance of, of winning the race, it's gonna be it's gonna be followed a lot more closer uh, than than they used to. I'm, I'm sure they're thrilled and I'm sure they're advertising their department are thrilled as well, selling airtime. Um, so I, and the, as, as we spoke about initially, stage wins are really the, the what what has given the most significant results to Danish cycling and we haven't really had a, a realistic chance of seeing anyone on the podium. But I think it is there's a potential that the world will gain in respect or interest by, you know, if you follow it closer, you you would probably see some of the best racing during the year. It's potentially even more entertaining than than the Tour and the Giro, especially when you look at if you if you look at your version of the Giro the last couple of years, I think there's a there's a potential for the world to be to be a lot more attractive from a from a viewing point of view. The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport Fueled by science. Well, Lionel, the suitcase, my suitcase is packed, um, almost packed. A few big decisions still to make. I, I think I might become the first person, the first journalist ever to go to a grand tour with three different pairs of running shoes. Um, I'm deliberating whether to take two or three pairs of running shoes. I was going to say flip flops, espadrilles, and uh, well, some yeah. other kind of yeah. beach appropriate <laughs> footwear. And the. W- the, the the water flosser. I don't know whether the water flossers come in as well. I don't know if anyone's ever taken one of those to a grand tour. I always take an iron. That's the cause of mirth with some of our travelling colleagues. Um, but I think an iron is a fairly common item to take. Um, the spreadsheet is is the spreadsheet is finished. The um, all the hotels. There's even a, a field on the spreadsheet this year for possible restaurant options already prepared. So um, yeah, we we sort of we're dialing in this this grand tour protocol with every passing year um and we'll hopefully reach perfection in 2078 yeah and i'll be at home keeping eyes on the race while you're by the beach you know under the parasol with your sangria or um well i don't know what would be your what would be your tipple of choice in spain i mean it's uh, again, do you know what it, it totally you know varies what? doesn't it cider a, a, a nice lager a sangria some lovely wine even even dare i say it the drink known in the uk is sherry um as the world draws near i find myself wanting to crack open 
not really crack, uncork a bottle of, I don't know, Manzanilla. Last year, we were down in Andalusia in Sherry country and really sort of developed a taste for it over a couple of days. Um, so, yeah, there'll be, there'll be plenty of that. There'll be, um, there'll be commentary about our dinners, as there always is. I didn't mention earlier that we'll also have Fran Reyes um, for a bit of wistful gazing. We premiered that feature last year. That's going to be back. Um, Lionel, as ever, talking about welter traditions we've got stacy snyder's cups um she has been hard at work um she's made mugs small cappuccino sized cups and bowls and um they will go on sale on saturday during stage one the usual time um 10 a.m u.s east coast time 3 p.m uk time and 4 p.m central european time so bef- before the stage to... then because it's in the evening isn't before it on Saturday, the stage. but there we are yeah yes lionel and um, we've also got um our divine sellers selection of six wines showcasing celebrating honoring this year's vuelta espana el clasico um you can hear also about that case in the podcast that we released three or four days ago um i was speaking to angus McNabb of divine sellers he's their sort of resident spanish expert and you can find all the information you need about how to order that case at www.divine that's the letter divine sellers dot com um go onto their website and look for the cycling podcast area banner on their homepage and you'll find not only the Vuelta case but um the Giro d'Italia case from this year and the Tour de France case as well and just before we move on a mention for our archive of kilometer zero episodes from the Vuelta a España from years past uh, there's a few on there that would probably stand up to another listen on the eve of this year's race uh if you sign up as a friend of the podcast at thecyclingpodcast.com sign up for a year you'll get access to the main friends of the podcast feed which has got all of the episodes on uh, but there's also a kilometer zero archive which has all of the historic episodes made at the grand tours between 2015 and 2019 among them some of these welter episodes there's one on sean kelly's victory in 1988 35 years ago that is now and his missing welter trophy uh daniel since your jan ulrich book came out uh, the episode on Jan Ulrich's 1999 Vuelta win uh, is well worth a listen. Uh, we once spoke to the race director, Javier Guillen, about, you know, what is the essence of the Vuelta? That's worth listening to as well. And there are uh, standalone episodes about the Angliru and Andorra, which I once described as the, the most wonderful place in Europe. <laughs> um, it's very high and it's very steep um, and Lionel we, we won't commit we're not going to commit to doing kilometer zero during the welter but who knows um, I whimsically might decide um, if the opportunity presents itself um, if I feel inspired to put out a kilometer zero or two during the Vuelta a España but um, Lionel without further ado should we go to Spain already uh, my flight's not until tomorrow morning but let's cross over, shall we, to the Iberian Peninsula to hear from our last sort of expert guest, um, friend, regular contributor to the cycling podcast, uh, Laura Meseguer, who is going to be on the race working for GCN Eurosport. I spoke to Laura yesterday about Juan Ayuso, who's the big Spanish hope in this Vuelta a España, Enric Mas, and also well, the Spanish challenge in general. Well, our next guest coming to us from Spain, she's just had a Grand Tour. She just had, I don't know, the third Grand Tour, her third Grand Tour 
of the year already. So this is her fourth grand tour. Uh, Laura, you've been on holiday. You've been on a long holiday. I know, I know. And it was my idea to go traveling from the south of Spain to the north, going through Portugal. I don't know why. I think it's... <laughs> Did you do a full recon <laughs> of the route, of the Vuelta route? I've always thought that would be the ultimate... The ultimate professional in our job would do a, a full You see, I know. Yeah, I did. I did because I was very close to Santander and we are going <laughs> to spend two nights there. So I know everything about it. So anything you want to ask, <laughs> Dan, I will be there for you. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, my first question actually is a sort of travel related question, Laura, because I'm guessing you know um, Barcelona um, pretty well. I don't know it that well. I've been a few times. Um, have you got a tip, one tip, any tip for me, for anyone who will be in Barcelona the weekend? Um, anything that maybe the guidebooks don't tell us that we should do? Well, I think Barcelona? it's just to, to get lost, you know, to um, to walk around. Don't Actually, I've been in Barcelona several times, always without uh, taking a look to the guide and... It's just so beautiful and it's kind of a small town, kind of. So it's easy to walk from one side to the other and visit the different um, areas and the center and of course have dinner, lunch, because that's the great experience to enjoy the gastronomy there. It's just amazing. Actually, I have to start booking our dinners for the team of Eurosport because it's going to be really full. Are you, you know that. You're not that much of a professional then because I started booking my dinners really? weeks ago. So then you need to tell me. Yeah. The spreadsheet oh, is Okay, great. That's ago. good. That's good. You have to share it with me. Yeah. Because, you know, being uh, yeah, yeah. Spanish and working in, with an international team, you feel like an ambassador in La Vuelta. So I yeah. have to do that well. So maybe you need to help me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you're, you're also our Spanish ambassador for this preview, uh, Laura. Um, I wanted to f ask you about the Spanish challenge in particular. And there is a, definitely a Spanish challenge for the general classification this year. And there's a lot of excitement about Juan Ayuso, who rode his first Vuelta last year and starred in his first Vuelta. And of all of the general classification contenders in this Vuelta, he's probably the only one for whom the Vuelta has been the main goal of the season. And... Um, He's also been giving interviews. He gave an interview in which he talked about his weight. It's got people talking. Um, a lot of discussion about the extreme measures that he, he goes to to keep his weight under control. He says he only has four days of the year when he can eat exactly what he wants. And uh, Maybe we'll touch on that in a second. But Laura, um, Juan Ayuso, should we believe, should we believe in this um, Spanish challenge? Well, you know, time? Juan had a... A difficult first part of the season with his injury in uh, January, and that forced them to to take out some races from his calendar, standing with UAE Emirates, and then Vuelta Valencia, and then País Vasco. So they've been like this, taking out the races, and but they they still follow everything that was planned at, in winter. For example, after Tour of Romandy, in a normal season, he should have taken a break before La Vuelta. And that's exactly what they've done. Mm. He took that rest, despite it, he didn't have any competition in his legs. No? Uh, just because, you know, to follow the plan, because they believe it's the good thing for him. And also Juan is like very methodic. Do you say that in English? And yeah, yeah methodical. methodical. So he yeah. needs to do things as planned. 
Um, and in the team, they have a lot of confidence in him. They they weren't surprised about his performance in Roman D. Yes and no, because, I mean, he was super strong. But the time trial, his victory, they gave them this um, confidence to know that he's in the right path this year. So he doesn't go to La Vuelta with any pressure from the team. And they will try to manage him not to put her, himself pressure on that mm. because he's in, he's a better rider than last year in la vuelta but the rivals are much stronger than last year as well so maybe maybe he can be in the podium again but maybe not because we have jonas uh, the super strong jumbo bisma uh remco mm. last year roglic crashed out the vuelta so the expectations are let's say like not low but full confidence but no pressure from him still you know a young rider i mean you say no no pressure on him i get the sense that he's a guy who maybe put some pressure on himself because as you say mm. he's very methodical again coming back to this comment about his weight um there is this perception with juan ayuso that he's been living like a professional for years and years we know we know a bit about his father being very well becoming very passionate about cycling and and sort of creating this environment about around Juan Ayuso which is was kind of like the environment that professional cyclists had and this going back years this going back to when Ayuso was I a teenager I think so and uh, you know Dan talking with with Machin and the people in the teams some in the team sometimes you forget that he's only 20 years old uh, Specifically because mm. this injury and these months out of competition he, he have made him more mature, you know, and, and you are start, still speak about 20 years old and he's so self-confident and, and he knows what to do. He's so professional. I mean, I was not like that when I was 20. I don't know if you were like that, but this is something we can't forget. And it's amazing. It's amazing. It looks like he's been professional for many years already yeah this is a, an interesting topic isn't it laura because um you know from the outside it may look as though well this is someone who's putting excessive pressure on himself and this is part of a wider trend in professional cycling where you know weight is well it's always been very important but in this sort of constant quest for marginal gains it's becoming more and more important but then i don't know I, part of me thinks that that generation the Gen Zers, famously, infamously now, they are quite controlled. They live very controlled lives and they don't drink as much as we used to. Um, maybe they find it easier, I don't know, to live the life that is required for a professional cyclist. There is, of course, this idea that and they will burn brightly and, well, they will be extinguished. Their, their stars will be extinguished earlier and they might not have such long careers. But who knows? Who knows? Um, Laura, talking of pressure... A man who is accustomed to going to the Vuelta a España with plenty of pressure is Eric Mas, the Movistar team leader. He's been second in the Vuelta three times now. He was supposed to do the Vuelta a Burgos to warm up for the Vuelta a España. They pulled him out. He said that he would rather train and get ready that way. Um, I feel as though, although he has finished second three times, we always underestimate him in the Vuelta. And he's very consistent in the yeah. Vuelta. And I expect him to be consistent and good this time. What do you think? I think that it's a shame that he crashed out of the tour, first of all, because last year we saw this improvement 
of Enrique in La Vuelta and at the end, by the end of the season. And also the beginning of 2023 season, he was super strong, battling with uh, Tari Pogacar and all these guys. So the thing is that we don't know how he's going to be because we didn't see him at the tour. So we don't know. And he doesn't know how he was exactly, um, his shape and so on. And still the team doesn't know how is he because he didn't have any, he doesn't have any competition in his legs for the last uh, two months, more or less. Mm. So it's kind of difficult to know. And also this Vuelta España starts already so hard. I mean, third stage is mm. already tough. So if he's not already in the good place, it can be a tough one for him. Well, with the team time trial and then even a second stage, I don't expect there to be big time gaps in uh, Barcelona hmm. on the second day, but there could be a few seconds and then there will be more time gaps on the third day. Someone could find themselves almost, I'm not going to say out out of the running, but a long way down on general classification. Hmm. Um, Laura, it, it kind of these noises about Carlos Rodriguez now maybe staying in Ineos, I kind of think it's a bit of a shame for Enric Mas because I feel as though... Um, Carlos Rodriguez going there would take a bit of pressure off him, take a bit of the focus off him, which would maybe be a good thing. Um, I guess we'll find out more, hmm. um, find out more on this when we go to Barcelona, find out what's actually happening on that front. Um, I wonder whether Eusebio Unzué has fallen out with um, Giuseppe Acuadro, the the super agent who, of course, was behind Richard Carapaz's very contentious move to Ineos a couple of years ago. And he's Carlos Rodriguez's agent. I wonder if um, after their reconciliation, Unzué and um, Acuadro are not best of buddies again. Hmm. Um, Laura, what else are we, uh, are we, are you, more to the point, looking forward to on this weather? Maybe, you know, when you look at the route or other riders that you're particularly looking forward to seeing perform? Well, apart from the obvious <laughs> guys, which is going to be like very interesting racing, um, I would like to see a Mikel Landa <laughs> feeling better than at the Tour. This is something every Grand Tour we say the same, but it's true. I've, I know that at the Tour he was concerned about his shape, not having yet signed a contract with a team. And well, I don't know if we will see him more motivated or kind of more relaxed. We will see, but Remco will be there. So I think when the boss is there, you try to, <laughs> to do things right, right? So he gets a good impression. And yeah, Landismo, you are showing me showing me the book of... <laughs> I've got my Bible here, yeah. um, my Landismo book, um, which was released just before the Tour de France, anticipating these, I don't know the, if these are the last rites um, being read for Landismo, because of course, he's going to suit our quick step to become a domestique. So Landismo might be dead as we knew it. But let's not forget that he's been a domestic uh, like for Ineos, like almost in every kind of every team he's been there because he changes team every two mm. years. So I think Landismo is also seeing Mikel Landa being a domestic and one day suddenly trying something crazy. And well, let's see, let's, uh, let's hope there's <laughs> one day of those. Or in La Vuelta, he tries something because there, are, there is plenty of mountains. So that would be nice. And I'm also looking forward to see Oyer Lazcano, who he's been super strong this season, to see how he's going to be at La Vuelta. And also, I, 
I, I'm going to ask you some help for this name because it's uh, the young Belgian writer from Bora. Oh, no, don't <laughs> ask me that. Don't ask me that. Anything but that. Kian. Kian Uteboots. Ah, you see? Um, yeah, fortunately, um, in this episode, we will hear from Renard Short. And no, in fact, I think we have already heard from Renard Short, our, our colleague at Sports in Belgium, who's helped us on that front. <laughs> but um, it's going to be three weeks of a crash course in learning how to pronounce Kian yeah. Uteboots' name properly. But then, you know, you learn one and appear as someone else with a most difficult <laughs> surname, but it's fine. So yeah, I think there are plenty, plenty of stories that we are going to speak about and new names that are going to be in the scene. And I'm really looking forward to that. And I really want to see Juan Ayuso in this Vuelta a España, really. And very last thing, Laura, one place that you're looking forward to going to and a prediction, please, for the, I don't know, give us a prediction for the final podium. <laughs> Please, I'm terrible help. with that. Okay, so one place. Uh, wait, I'm with the map right now. One region. Region. Okay, always Cantabria is very nice. I mean, I spent part of my holidays. As you said, I did the recon <laughs> of this part of La Vuelta. <laughs> so Cantabria and Asturias are always like one of my favorites because, I mean, it's super nice. The, the, the views, the the time we spend them, dinners, etc. And my final podium, Jesus, I don't know. Have you give yours? Ah? No, no, um, no. It's um, host prerogative not to give their prediction. Oh my God. <laughs> um, you mean the one I would like or the one, I don't know. I'm, I never one, give podiums prediction, but okay, I'm gonna try one. Um, mm, 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 mm. So for example, <laughs> first Mikel Landa first, yeah exactly Mikel Landa Enric Mas no um, I mean I think it's going to be one guy from Jumbo Visma I would like it's not that I don't want them to win but I would like to see someone else winning uh, but well maybe Jonas Jonas oh, uh, Remco and Roglic but I don't agree with that podium prediction <laughs> So I don't she know. Don't agree with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't Laura know. Messing it out disagrees with her own <laughs> exactly. prediction. Um, Laura, um, on that on that slightly farcical note, I'm going to thank you and well, um, wish you safe travels to the Vuelta, and I'll be seeing you um, probably at the weekend, if not before. Thank you, thank you, Dan. See you there and enjoy. So Lionel, Laura, not very fond of predictions, very reluctant, reticent about giving a prediction for this Vuelta Espana. It very would be wise. not too. Well, it'd be remiss of us not to speculate a little bit. Come on, Lionel, what's going to happen? Who's going to win? Well, I do think that... Uh, I, oh, it's so difficult. It is actually very difficult because it's not about whether or not Jonas Vingegaard can win the Vuelta because clearly he can. I mean, he's the best climber in the world. There's an awful lot of climbing uh, on the menu. It's just what's his kind of mental state? What's his level of motivation after having won the Tour de France? I mean, it's always a tricky one, this, isn't it? The, the, the sense for some riders that the Vuelta is a little bit after the Lord's Mayor's show, as we say here in the UK, 
Um, but I do think that Jumbo Visma between them will get the job done one way or the other because between Vingegaard and Roglic they have kind of every base covered if it becomes a climbing grand tour where it's a, it's just about you know basically um, watts per kilo on the big climbs Vingegaard's got that base covered if it becomes a scrap for seconds uh, in time bonuses and, and just you know nibbling away here and there Roglic has kind of got that base covered so and I think they're canny enough to keep both riders in play long enough to really present a, a sort of unbreakable wall for the rest yeah and I don't, I, I don't foresee any internal strife I mentioned the fact that those two share a manager um, they're also very good friends uh, Vingegaard and Roglic and Vingegaard has talked about how Roglic is a bit of a mentor to him um, yeah uh, I, I mean obviously having watched the Vuelta Burgos Roglic is on really really good form um, he hasn't really dropped people in the mountains this year he dropped uh, Remco Evenepoel on one stage at uh, Volta Catalunya earlier in the year but um, it's been a lot of it's just been a sort of um, a, a blanket Roglification this year um, lots of winning uphill sprints and just riding very cannily whether that's going to be enough I think if Remco Evenepoel can can turn it into sort of hand-to-hand combat if he can be aggressive attack early and almost negate nullify the influence of Jumbo Visma's very strong team and it comes down to him versus Vingegaard or Roglic on climbs then that could be a way for him to to maybe win the race but I think it's going to be an interesting study in the sort of the specificity in terms of Grand Tour preparation because okay Remco wasn't originally down to do the Vuelta but by all accounts and we know he's been at altitude um, he's he's prepared for this Vuelta as he would have wanted to same with Roglic you know they've devoted a couple of months each to preparing for this Vuelta whereas we've had well we've got Vingegaard who I don't think has been at altitude over the last three or four weeks and he's he's trying to sort of roll on after a Tour de France victory and it'll be interesting to see if there is actually quite a big disparity between those two approaches that's manifested on the road you know Garrett Thomas is going to be interesting I think he'll he'll do well the first two weeks he'll definitely be in contention after two weeks I expect him to be and then he might struggle in those um, three stages in Asturias or struggle more and um, Ayuso I just don't know I don't know what to expect Um, there's been sort of light and shade in his 2022 season and there are others as well Vlasov was strong in in Burgos not as strong as Roglic and Adam Yates but um, he could challenge and you know we always uh, people are talking about this as you know this unbelievable prospect this mouth-watering prospect of Remco Roglic and Vingegaard but as I always say in Grand Tours unfortunately the reality after three four five days often doesn't live up to the billing because Something will happen, unfortunately, to one of them, whether it's poor form, crash, some other kind of problem. And it's pretty unlikely that we get this fantastic three-way, four-way, five-way clash of the titans that I think that the sort of sales pitch tells us we're going to get at this Vuelta. Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? I mean, it all kicks, we'll off, have to wait and see. All kicks off on Saturday with the team time trial in Barcelona. I mean, we've... You'll be singing, you'll be doing your Freddie Mercury karaoke. <laughs> oh, you know me so well. Uh, that's, by, that's by somebody completely different. Um, and, well, this, we've kind of, we've set this template of extra large 
grand tour previews haven't we but i mean this is in danger of being longer than some of the welter stages if we're not careful so we should probably wrap it up here we won't be we, should, we won't be I doing know. an hour plus every night from the welter will we will be it, it's the no. it's the punchy grand tour and the podcast will be punchy too yellow card if i go over 45 minutes uh, red if i go over 50 minutes lionel will be back on Saturday. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what, you know, where you are, what you're having for dinner, what your hotel's been like, whether you've had any encounters with bats, any of that kind of stuff. Until then, same bat channel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.